It's a real delight to uh, be with you, brothers and sisters, and uh, these last, uh, this last day and a half has been a great joy to be able to uh, meet with your pastors, see your church at work, uh, serving so many other people, and to see love in action has been a great joy for me uh, to be able to watch uh, this take place and unfold before my eyes. And so I want you to know I'm very humbled and just honored to be here. I thank the Lord for your pastors with uh, Pastor Nate and Pastor Andy, their wives, their families, and uh, it's, a, it's a real joy to be able to stand here and take uh, just a few moments of his time, which I know is very precious for him to teach you and to, uh, from the Word and to be able to hopefully challenge us towards truth. I, I told the men, and I will tell you here, that it's very important that when we think about uh, Romans chapter 12 and Romans 13, where we've been speaking the last day and a half and now continue here, is that our desire is to press us, to push us towards the gospel. Not a man, not a church, not a way of doing things, a pattern of life, but to push you towards the person of Jesus Christ who is central in the gospel. So let's do that now. Let's take our Bibles and let's turn to chapter 12 of Romans. I will not uh, go through what we've gone through the last uh, few weeks, or last few days, but I would like to just introduce for you genuine love. And to do that, I want to draw your attention to a historical person and his wife, Adoniram and Ann Judson. They were the first foreign missionaries sent from North America, and they set sail on February the 19th, 1812, hard to believe, and they set sail for India. Little did they know that their lives were destined for what we today call Myanmar, but in those days it was Burma, and their path would slog through suffering and anguish and death. Courtney Anderson, the book I read in preparation for these few paragraphs, vividly chronicles the hardships in her book. It's entitled To the Golden Shores. Anybody ever read that book by any chance? Okay, a few of you have. If you want a gut-wrenching book, um, that is for you. If you don't want to be <laughs> go through that experience, then don't read it. It is amazing. Three of their children died in infancy. Judson himself was imprisoned and tortured beyond human imagination for 20 months. Anne horridly dies October 24, 1826, after battling months of stress and disease. After Anne's death, Adoniram lived in despair for about four years while a missionary on the field. He seemed to lose sight of his of his God, and he lost his spiritual footing. He was known for his tidiness and cleanliness, and yet he went out and dug a grave in the lion-infested jungle and sat beside that grave for days. He stared into the dark hole and contemplated the stages of the body's decay in all its gruesome detail, writes Courtney Anderson. He wrote on the third anniversary of Anne's death these words, and I quote, God is to me the great unknown. I believe in him, I just can't find him, end quote. 
Though God's grace eventually rescued and restored the spirit and mission of Adoniram, sadness shadowed his spirit until his death. However, God had another 20 years of productivity for Adnarum. Without realizing it, his path of suffering prepared him for an extraordinary ministry in Burma until he died April 12, 1850, at the age of 62. Before Adnarum and Anne arrived in Burma, there were no known Christians. At his death, at his funeral, there were 200,000 believers gathering somewhere in Burma to acknowledge God's kindness through this man. They were studying the Bible in their own language because of the tireless translation work of Adnarm, who had suffered so much. The intense suffering was God's platform to display his love to the Burmese people. When Adnarm and his small army of missionaries began the new year in 1831, quote, everyone in Burma, Adnarm writes, seemed to want to learn of this new gospel. The heartaches of Adnarm and Anne became the soil in which thousands of Burmese were planted for Jesus Christ. The plan of God is now clear. Out of the severe trials of God's two servants, an entire nation is introduced to the love of God in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter five and verse eight tells us that God demonstrated his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So my brothers and sisters, when I come to this particular passage of scripture that we read just a moment ago and begin in verse nine, and you read verse nine, I want you to understand that when we talk about love in relationship to the book of Romans, we're talking about something that up until chapter 12, love is mentioned, chapters 1b to chapter 11. Love is mentioned, but it's never related to a human. Love is always related to God, just like the verse I quoted to you, chapter 5, verse 8. God demonstrated his love towards us and that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. Or the end of chapter 8, what can separate us from the love of Christ? So the word love is always connected in the first 11 chapters with God, with Christ, with the Holy Spirit, Romans 5, 5, that God deposited the Spirit in us and overflows our hearts with love. Speaking of the Spirit as the source of this love. But then all of a sudden, when we move to chapter 12, there is a pivot that's taking place by the Apostle Paul, and now he makes an incredible statement in verse nine, and for the first time in the book of Romans, he connects love to humanity, to people, to humans. And this is what he states, verse nine. Let love be without hypocrisy. Let love 
be without hypocrisy. It's very interesting to me when I think of the concept of love and tag it as Paul did in the first 11 chapters to God, the source of love, so that when we move to chapter 12 and verse nine, what we're going to see is that this love is not in any way sourced in a human emotion. This love is sourced in something far greater than anything we can see or touch or feel. This is not humanly sourced. This is something unique. This is something different. This is something to be displayed in these verses before the community of believers as well as before the world. It has a spillover effect in chapter 13 to our government. It has a spillover effect in chapter 13, verses 8 to 10, to our neighbors. In fact, it says in chapter 13, verse 10, this incredible statement, love never does evil against a neighbor. So when we talk about this love and we put it in the context of this letter of Romans, I want you to understand, men and women, we are talking about something that we need God's spirit to intervene in this moment if we're going to understand what this text is saying about love. Because it's something that's not normal. <laughs> so as I look at this text, and I'm challenged by it, I, I'm amazed that when you look at your particular text, I don't know if you have italicized words or not in yours, I'm using the legacy standard here, but mine has italicized words, and it says, let love be without hypocrisy. Interestingly, there's no verb. So in the original text, it says love without hypocrisy. And it's a noun. Agape without hypocrisy. I love what John Stott writes about this in, in his commentary when he says this. What Paul is saying is from a word from the Greek stage, hypocrisy. It's a word for actors. So, Stott says, the church is not to be acting. It is to be the genuine product of the gospel when it comes to love. There's no hypocrisy, there's no stage acting. In other words, on the outside saying one thing, on the inside full of hatred towards that person or bitterness towards that person or unkindness towards that person. Love without acting. And what he's gonna do is unpack that phrase. In fact, I think most commentators are correct when they say that this is sort of a generic, general heading and everything all the way down to verse number 21 is gonna come underneath this. So when you see how he finishes the verse, love without acting, he, he gra gravitates to two words in your text. And I think you see that in verse nine. There are actually two participles. A participle is a word that ends in I-N-G, loving, Thinking, singing, look at how it states in the text in verse nine. What does it mean loving without hypocrisy? Here are the boundaries. Boundary one, hating what is evil. Genuine love that comes from God, sourced in him, continually hates evil in ourselves and around us. 
Secondly, it says, the other boundary is it's gripping or clinging, holding fast to, I like the word gripping, what is good. Stiff-arming evil, gripping good. These are the two boundaries in which love plays out without acting. And it's interesting to me how he works through the passage, and look at the very last verse in verse number 21. Notice what he says there as he concludes everything that he has said about love, he concludes this way, never be overcome by evil, but overcome the evil with good. Evil becomes the instrument by which good is displayed. I love what the Swiss theologian Friedrich Godet says about this. He said, only love from God could ever make this masterpiece happen. To think that evil is the instrument by which good comes out of, by the overcoming of the evil, this good is displayed. So when you pick up chapter 12 and you look at verses 9 to 21, it's within a context of Paul challenging the church, the community of believers there at Rome, all these house churches, challenging them concerning very important and life-altering, transformative, if you will, concepts. And one of those he spends the most time in, in 12 and 13, is this concept of love. It's, it's, it's totally different than what a normal person would think. And the way he displays it is this. When you look at verse number 10 down to verse number 16, he talks about the concepts of love, the concept of love, excuse me, singular, the concept of love within the community of believers. And then notice what he does in verse 17. You'll see this. Never paying back evil for evil to anyone, respecting what is good in the sight of all men. Verse 18, be at peace with all men. He broadens the scope at verse 17 so that verse 17 down to verse number 21, he is now speaking to the church, the community of believers, but he's moving away from what the community is to do with each other, verse 11 down to verse 16, and this is how the community responds in our world. And then he takes an entire paragraph, chapter 13, verses 1 to 7. This is what it looks like under the government that you find yourself. And then chapter 13, verse 8 to 10. This is what it looks like with your neighbor. And then he concludes, verses 11 to 14. He lays out for us, men and women, one of the, one of the clearest, most powerful statements on love. As we said yesterday, to the brothers that when you consider how your New Testament is arranged, you have four gospels. These are biographical narratives that, that God has used through human instrument, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and each one is tapered to give a statement about who Jesus Christ is. And then the second part of your New Testament is one book, the book of Acts. 30 years of history. So how the early church was to implement what they knew about Jesus Christ. It becomes highly instructive for us as we look at the book of Acts. And then the third part are the 22 church letters, Romans all the way to Revelation. 
And these letters written to individuals, to pastors, to leaders, to local churches, all of these 22 letters are, are committed, the, committing the church, those of us who study and give ourselves to, as believers in Christ, inspired words from heaven through someone who is writing a letter so that it just continues on decade after decade and, and century after century. And here we are today, AD 57, the book of Romans, and here we are, 2023, and it's still alive. It's still alive. So when I look at how this particular letter is laid out, I'm, I'm greatly challenged to, today because the way the 22 letters begin are from Paul's third missionary journey. Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and then all the way to Revelation. So that on Paul's third missionary journey, you have three letters that the church decided to put in this particular order, and I think rightly so, because Romans is about the gospel. First Corinthians, what happens when a local church messes up the gospel? And then 2 Corinthians, what happens to that messenger who produces the gospel and preaches the gospel? Surely life will be sweet for somebody who speaks for God. And 2 Corinthians is anything but a sweet letter. So when I look at the way it's developed for us, Romans becomes a significant statement that the church has seen from the early days that we must capture as a community of believers. And so that's what makes these verses in verse 10 through 16 so powerful to us today. So I hope that as you consider these, that you will understand this was in the context of two boundaries. We are stiff-arming the evil and we are gripping the good. And within these two boundaries, here's how we are to respond to one another. So let's look and see what the text says. This is how we respond. Verse 10, being devoted to one another in brotherly love. Interesting, there's two powerful words that are here and both of them have to do with family love. And it helps us because when people get saved and decide to be a walk with Jesus Christ and they begin to be discipled, they come into a community of believers, out of a community that is without Christ, into a small community of believers, and they're coming in not to a new society, Romans 13 will make that clear, but they're coming into a new family. So you have brotherly love. You have family love, words that are strongly suggesting that the church is not just an organization. A church is a family. Secondly, verse number 10 says, and we are to give preference, preference to one another in honor. We are giving preference. What, what does that mean? It means this, that did you notice when the two times that we quoted or read scripture from the screen, what was happening in the background? Anything? Yes. There was some piano music playing. What if the pianist said, I'm tired of being the quiet one. I'm gonna be a little bit more forceful so they know I'm here. So she begins to play louder. And Pastor Andy kind of looks over and says, well, if she can go loud, I can go loud. And he starts to raise his voice. 
and back and forth. You know, it's, I use that as just a very simple illustration because what is the pianist doing? The pianist has, is giving to us this undergirding thought that moves us in a heart of worship but plays quietly so that the text comes alive as we read it, giving preference to the text. So this is how our lives are to be as believers within a local assembly. It says here that we are giving preference to one another with honor, which means that we're, we're going to allow ourselves to take the back seat. <laughs> so this can take place in lives and people. This is very important when he moved to chapter 14 and 15 because you have brothers that are weak and brothers that are strong. And if they can capture what it means here in chapter 12, that genuine love has certain boundaries, and first and foremost is this, is that this is a family. And as a family, we're going to give preference one to another. So the strong and the weak within the church are going to give preference to one another. Because the things that are mentioned in chapters 14 and 15 are not doctrinal issues on Christology. They're not doctrinal issues on the scripture, inspiration. They are preferences of life and patterns of history that are involved in the dissension. And so it's very important as he lays out here in verse number 10, we are to give preference to one another. In fact, look, at, if you will, at chapter 15. Just flip over and look at verse three and, and the first part of verse four. For even, verse, verse two, excuse me, verse two, first part of verse three. Verse two, each of us is to please his neighbor, his Christian, speaking the Christian, in the Christian community, for his good, for his building up. For even Christ did not please himself. So I just stop right there. So that in the conclusion of the dissension within chapter 14 with the church is to go back to the person of Jesus and say, listen, each of us is to do what Jesus would do. The apostle Paul made a really interesting statement in one of his prison epistles, and these are the words, if I could just read it to you from Philippians chapter two. You don't need to turn, but just hear the words that he says. We are do nothing of selfish ambition or vainglory, but with humility of mind, regarding one another as more important than yourself. Not merely looking out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this way of thinking in yourselves. This is how Jesus thought. You see, so brothers and sisters, the idea back here in Romans in chapter 10 is an idea that, that the Apostle Paul is putting together through the work of the Spirit upon him, and his eyes are spiritualized, are really on the person of Christ when he says, this is how we are to love. We are to love like a family. We are to be able to give to each other preference. Then in verse number 11, he gives three ideas, not lagging behind with zeal, being fervent in spirit and serving the Lord. This, this is really important because it's within a context of how the community gathers together and give preference to one another. If we're gonna do that, you're gonna have to be very certain in verse number 10 or verse number 11 that you do this with zeal because there's gonna be times that you're gonna wanna be slothful. 
Do I have to do this again? This person really rubs me wrong. Maybe you rub them wrong too, right? But the idea that is taking place is Paul is building his case to help us understand what it means to love without acting. And if we're going to do it the right way, then we're going to have to be people of zeal. We're also, verse 11 says, we're going to have to be fervent in spirit. I think he's speaking here of the Holy Spirit. Fervency is the idea of to boil over. I love what C.E.B. Cranfield, how he takes it. He says this, this is a hot fire expression that comes from the Holy Spirit. It's a hot fire expression. So that when you look at this in verse number 11, we're not slothful in zeal as we serve the community, but we are hot as fire because the Holy Spirit is our source as we deal with one another. And then, it's very important, this last phrase, serving the Lord, because you've got two very strong emotions here, zeal and hot as fire. Those emotions are strong. So the purpose of what we are doing cannot be lost. We are serving the Lord when we give preference to one another. We are serving the Lord when we count this as a family. We are serving the Lord as we begin to think like Christ towards other people. Serving the Lord. So yes, there is zeal and it's boiling. Yes, there is fervency. But we don't lose the purpose of our ministry. We are serving, in serving the body, we are serving the Lord. Notice what else he says in verse number 12. As you serve the Lord, there are three words that stand out in verse 12. You can underline them, you can circle them, or highlight them in your mind. Hope, affliction, tribulation, and prayer. There are three words that, if you're going to have a boiling over zeal, If you're going to be fervent, if you're going to serve the Lord, you're going to have to be careful with three words that Paul uses over and over and over in his 13 letters. It's hope, it's tribulation, and it's prayer. You're going to face all three of these within the community. And the beauty part is he begins with a heart of rejoicing in hope, over and over again, rejoicing in hope. In fact, look, look back at chapter five real quickly. Look back at chapter five and just look how he does it here, which is so amazing, connecting it with tribulation. In chapter five, verse two, we've been justified by faith, verse one, Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained our introduction by faith into the grace in which we stand, we glory in hope. What is our hope? The hope is the glory of God. Remember Romans 3.23? We have all sinned and we have fallen short of what? The glory of God. You can speak to me. I'm just an old, dusty professor. Okay, you can speak to me. So we are rejoicing in our hope of the glory of God, that which when we were sinners, we fell far short of the glory of God. Now we rejoice that the glory of God is in front of us. It is our future. It is a sweet thought for us. This gives us hope. So rejoicing in that hope. Go on in chapter five. It says this, and not only this, but we are glorying in our tribulations. 
knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. Notice the difference in the way the word is used, tribulations or afflictions, plural, and then tribulation or affliction, singular. Verse three, look at it. Not only this, we can glory in our tribulations, like we were glorying in the hope of the glory of God. Really? Yeah. Knowing that each tribulation is bringing about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, here it is again, hope. And hope never puts us to shame because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been deposited within us, who has been given to us. You see, when Paul connects these things back in chapter 12, when Paul is connecting these things of hope, tribulation, and prayer, it's not all of a sudden for the reader that, oh, well, let's put together hope and tribulation. No, Paul has been doing this all along in the letter, building and building and building, so that by the time you get to chapter 12, he's gonna take love and swing it around from God to you. And this love is sourced in the Spirit so that you are capable of these three words, hope, affliction, which you will face, and prayer. Because the affliction keeps us on our knees constantly in prayer. God, how do I work through this personal issue? God, how do I work through this family issue? God, how do I work with my wife, with my husband? God, how do I work this out with my children? Children, how do I work this out with my parents? So when you consider what is taking place in this biblical text, brothers and sisters, I just want you to understand that Paul is building a case so that the church loves without acting. We really are sincere from the inside out about what this means. And then verse 13 of chapter 12, he gives two incredible statements that are not spiritual gifts at this point. They're just something the whole church does. We're sharing, contributing to the needs of the saints, and we're pursuing hospitality. Your home, and remember, I think is a great statement because these are house churches. Your home becomes exhibit A to the demonstration of the grace of God. My dad used to often say before he passed away, your home is your larger self. How many times us boys heard this? Your home is your larger self. You wanna know what somebody's like? Look at their home. So that's why it's important when you looked at your pastors way back, you, you didn't just say, boy, he's, he sure can put nouns and verbs together. But boy, he, he, you know, he, like, you know, just look how good looking Pastor Nate is, you know. I get to see that every Sunday. Really? I mean, that's what we're talking about? No. You look at 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus in chapter 1. It's character, it's character, it's character, it's character. It's the home, it's the home, it's the home. Because if somebody is to stand up by the grace of God and only by the grace of God, they have been on their knees and they're working through issues themselves within their home life. So they can come and stand before you, not as perfect individuals, but 
individuals who are dominated by the grace of God. I will work through this issue through the biblical text. And so what's happening is they're pursuing hospitality. Their home becomes an exhibit for the gospel and people are coming into homes, your home. And you're sharing meals and you're with one another building these relationships. And when you see people having need, you're not just saying, hey, deacons, go get that need. It's not that at all. It's, this is what you are to do. You are to contribute to the needs of those saints that are hurting. Take care of it yourself. Do it. Because we're talking about a family community. And then verse number 14 is a very, very difficult text. I was hoping that my time would be up so I'd have to stop the message here at verse 13. But no such luck. <laughs> 14 is very difficult for comment. But remember from verse 11 to verse 16, this is all towards the community. And notice what it says in verse number 14. Bless those who persecute you. Now let me give you a little hint to help you. The word persecute is the identical verb as the verb in verse 13b, pursuing. You saw pursuing hospitality? That's the identical verb that you have here in verse number 14. Bless those who are pursuing you in an improper way. You are pursuing others, verse 13b, in a right way. But there can possibly be people in the church, in the community, who pursue you in the wrong way. Here's what I want you to do. Bless them. Don't curse them. You say, how in the world? All you have to do is just look at the example of the Apostle Paul. Just take, take 2 Corinthians chapter 10, chapter 13, and just look at people he had led to Christ, and he has to defend his apostleship because you know, you're saying that my words are not good words. My life is not really what it, I'm saying it to be. They, they are speaking in a wrong way about the apostles. He, he led these people to Christ. He started this church. Or a little bit later in Philippians 1, there are going to be public statements made against the person of Paul so it will increase his prison time there with Caesar. Think of that. They're preaching to increase the prison time of Paul. It's really? Because God is looking at the heart. So when he writes here in verse number 14, bless those who are pursuing you, bless and don't curse them, Paul understands very well what that means personally. He doesn't stop and put in an and say, let me just tell you about so-and-so. He's allowing the Spirit to use this so that you can love without acting. Verse 15, circumstances fluctuate. So we're gonna be rejoicing with those who rejoice and we're weeping with those who weep because circumstances change. I mean, you can come in one Sunday and it has been fantastic and you're gonna come in the next Sunday and there's gonna be somebody just literally weeping because of the circumstances of that particular week has crushed them. So we ask you as a church, individuals, to go up to them Rejoice with those who are rejoicing. Thank God, bless God. Those who are weeping, you're putting your arms around. You're weeping with them. Verse 16, you're having the same mind toward one another. There it is. You're not cherishing pride, haughty of mind. 
You're willing to associate those who, with those who are humble that the world may look down upon and say, you know, look at the way they live or what they don't have or whatever it could be. When you come into the community of the family, we are family. And so when he says that here, he is saying to them, verse 16, don't be wise in your own mind. In other words, don't become your own accountability person. Don't be your own counselor. Be wise, but not in your own mind. All of these things, brothers and sisters, all of these things are within the community. And then he spreads it out, verse 17, 18, 19, 20, and 20. He spreads this all out. He says, now, because this love is sourced in the spirit, it's overflowing your heart, it's gonna have amazing effect in your neighborhoods, in your society, about you. It's, gonna, it's amazing, why? Because 2 Corinthians chapter five, verse 14, Paul writes this, the love of Christ controls us. We are possessed by the Spirit. Being possessed by the Spirit means that there is a love that is flowing out, Romans 5, 5. It is flowing, it's gushing out of us. Do you realize that the only reason that we, I, me, the reason I don't love is because I'm stopping what the Holy Spirit is trying to pour out. It's the most incredible thing to think about what God is asking of us. The fruit of the Spirit is, what's the first one? Love. So it spills out into our neighborhood. Look, look, look what it looks like, verse 17. We can't spend time on it, we can just read it, really. Never paying back evil for evil to anyone. Respecting what is good in the sight of all. Wow. If possible, and as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. You know, he didn't just say be at peace with all men, but he puts two little caveats. Number one, if it's possible, and as far as it depends upon you, because he's very aware that the unsaved world is not gonna follow the scriptures, love without acting. Never take your own revenge, beloved, which is interesting to me. He inserts the word beloved in this incredible chapter. Puts it right here. Because we who are loved of God, that's what beloved is. You are loved of God, so what does it matter if your neighbor says that? Have you ever had a tree of your neighbor fall down on your fence and land in your yard? And he says here, never take your own revenge, beloved. Instead, leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I'll repay, says the Lord. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him to drink, for in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now here's the way you can say, see that tree that fell into my lawn? I'm gonna be nice to him because God's wrath and burning coals, that's gonna take care of it, right? 
There's two ways commentators look at this. On the one hand, St. Augustine brought up years ago that the burning coals could be burning coals of shame. When they see the activity of the believer exercising love, when the tree falls over at the fence and lands down, exercising love, when that takes place and the neighbor wasn't gonna do anything about it, it's on your property now, that's your fence, not mine, that we go with him with love because in love the coals of burning are going to dissolve, dissolve him to shame. That's possible. I'm okay with that. However, the context is a context of judgment. Verse 19 says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him to drink. And so doing, you heap burning coals on his head. Burning coals of judgment is the idea upon his head. But what's so interesting to me, brothers and sisters, is this, is that if you take the one, it gets you out of a, you know, take St. Augustine's view, it gets you out of a little problem. On the other hand, as Schreiner says in his commentary, the problem is, is the whole context is judgment. Maybe this is right, but here's the context. The context is definitely colored by this idea of our love being without hypocrisy. We're hating, stiff-arming evil. We are loving, clinging to that which is good. Within this, we work. And as we are ministering to our neighbors, as we are doing things, I think, that are very, very important to our neighbors who maybe something went awry. <laughs> maybe a boss said something and you have to pay the penalty for a coworker. Whatever it could be, whatever it is, verse 21, don't be overcome by evil, but you overcome the evil with good. So my context is this. If indeed it is coals of burning, meaning judgment, that is something we are leaving with God himself to do. That's what it says. Leave it alone. Let God have the room to do what he wants to do with that neighbor. But what are we doing? We are individuals who are exercising verse number eight. We are showing mercy with cheerfulness. You know, up until chapter 12, the word mercy only dealt with God in chapters one to 11. Like love, mercy in chapter 12 is gonna pivot and now it's gonna be identified with humans, believers, who are now doing what the Holy Spirit asked them to do. You can actually show mercy with cheerfulness, you can actually see that tree fall and you go cut it down and you take care of it and you do it with cheerfulness. You're not gonna be overcome with evil, but you're gonna overcome evil with good. Can I give to you four quick applications? My, my buzzer just went off, okay? So you gotta be quick. I want, I, I want this to be an encouragement to you. All right, number one, let's do number one. Here's our first application. Genuine love is a supernatural expression from the Holy Spirit and each believer is possessed by this at his salvation. This is the most, this, this, is the, this is the division between 
Love as defined by the world and love as defined by the New Testament scriptures. And that's this. The, it's a supernatural expression. You do not love humanly on your own like the scriptures tell you. It has to be a work of the Spirit. Number two, the second application, very important. Genuine love is transformational action that marks every disciple of Jesus. Jesus said this in John 13, by this all men will know that you are my disciples and that you do what? That you're not fighting? No, that you're loving one another. There are so many stories from church history I could give, but for this time, we can't. Except to say, when you see how people were treated and beaten and like Adnarm Judson, why would he stay in Burma? Even when he was struggling with, where is God? Because it's a supernatural work and it's transformational action. Number three, the third thing, Genuine love has inescapable moral instructions. Love my neighbor, never do evil to him, live within my government as a noble citizen. Really? It has inescapable moral instructions. But obedience to this is not automatic. You just don't all of a sudden wake up in the morning and you're just gonna obey. You're just gonna have the love spill out all over the place in your neighborhood. You're just gonna come in and to the community and as you come into the community, I mean, just love is just gushing every which way. You're human. So I want you to know that obedience is not automatic. And finally, number four, the last one is this. Genuine love is evident in both the church and in the world in which you live, your government and your neighbors. Let's conclude by one passage. You turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You can hardly deal with love without looking at these first three verses of 1 Corinthians 13. And with this, I'll close and turn it over to Pastor. This is what it says. 1 Corinthians 13. There's four areas that are gonna touch on. Speech, knowledge, what you possess, and your body, watch. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I'm nothing but a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. Nothing more irritating than that. And if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and I know stuff, and if I even have faith so I could remove a mountain, but no love, I am nothing. If I give all of my possessions to feed the poor, wow, there's something. If I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me, what's the last word? Nothing. So brothers and sisters, can I say this to you? Number one, we are here because Jesus Christ has redeemed us. We are saved people. We are not here because somebody has, fi we figured this out. We're not here because of we were born on this side of the tracks, not those side of the tracks. We're not here because, oh, we're Protestant. We're not that. We are here only by the grace of God 
that Jesus Christ would die for us while we were sinners. And all I have to do is put my faith and trust, surrender to that cross, that that is my payment for God's wrath. And I am going to have everlasting life. I mean, I am saying to you, men and women, that this is life transforming. And it's not enough for God to say, okay, here is my plan. Christ, cross your faith. But I know you live in a mortal body. So Romans 8 is very clear. He takes his spirit and implants it within you so you are indwelt by the spirit of God. So everything that we talked about here can actually literally happen. It won't be without tears. It won't be without tribulation. But it can actually happen. How big is your God? Father, thank you for our moments together. Thank you for what you're doing in this church. Thank you for the joy of sharing for just a few minutes on this subject that is, needs to be at the forefront of our minds, our thinking. It is the result of the Spirit, not a result of my emotion, not how I feel. Lord, may we be people, may I, I, be a person who loves without acting. In Jesus' name.